You're listening. You're listening to a University of Kentucky. University of Kentucky. College of Arts and Sciences podcast. As the final part of the Transnational Lives podcast series, this podcast focuses on social theory and the intersection of Mexican and American culture. In this podcast, Kate Gooch, Josh Martin, and Yorkie Encolada speak with William Nericho about Spanish transnationalism and the development of his studies with Mexdasi, his fight against stereotypes. So I'm Kate Gooch, and I'm a PhD student in the English department. I'm Joshua Martin. I'm also a PhD student, but in the Hispanic Studies department. I'm Yorkie Encolada. I'm also a PhD student in the Hispanic Studies department. And I'm Bill Naricho, and I'm not a PhD student <laughs> anymore. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. The first question that we have for you today is how do you define social theory? How do I define social theory? I think of it first as a, an intervention. Um, there's so many camps of criticism uh, within social theory. How do I define social theory? Um, there's so many critical schools of thought within social theory that I'm going to answer the question as if it was a, as if you were asking me about my emotions. Uh, social theory is always an intervention. Social theory is what academics do when they are discontent, that they want to change things, they want to improve things. It is not, for me, uh, an objective process. I think of that more as the true social sciences. For me, theory is an interruption. It's an interception. It's an opportunity to make things better uh, for your students, but ultimately also for society. Social theory is for activists. It's not for sit-on-your-butts old-school academics uh, whose silence merely reinforces the status quo. Um, social theory ideally should be revolutionary uh, it should uh, turn over the apple cart it should make people pissed off uh, it should actually make students uncomfortable uh, I was telling my students the other day in my undergraduate class that confusion is a great thing that unless you meet a point of confusion in an academic context you're having it too easy that confusion is positive. It's what happens when we're forced in our brain to rearticulate things we thought we've already we already know. It's almost like the difference between RAM and ROM, the hard drive, and your active memory uh, on your computer. Uh, many times we just go along with what's on the hard drive. Social theory is RAM. It's disruptive. It's new. It's now. Uh, it should make even progressive academics uncomfortable. Along those lines, how do you see our theme for the course, Transnational Lives, as fitting within social theory? What kind of knowledge can transnational lives produce? The knowledge trans a transnational approach to social theory brings is a sensitivity to frontiers and borders. Uh, even within social theory, even within the most progressive branches of academe, the tendency of academic culture is to mirror mass culture. And our mass American culture is filled with racism, it's filled with hate, 
neo-fascism. And there's no reason to believe that that doesn't sneak into uh, our practice as academics. So the transnational approach forces you to admit that there are worlds outside your, your border. There are worlds outside the frontier that we're implicated in. I mean, the United States is an empire. We, uh, that's not a controversial remark. It's not, a, it's not even a political remark. It is a factual, historical, verifiable, empirical remark. So the consequence of empire are all these nasty liaisons with different countries and different peoples that the transnational approach in social theory forces you to come grip to grips with. Whether you want to be or not, when you are an intellectual within an empire, you are complicit with the system. The only hope for interrupting, slowing, displacing that complicity is to broaden your gaze, to include those domesticated properties, i.e. neighbors, uh, whose nations your empire messes with. Uh, my own focus in, in my research is Mexico and Latin America, but it's also, it's interesting, I mean, that's the geographic or the national um, dimension of it, but I also am very interested in interrupting literature proper, the novel, the poem, the newspaper, with things like film, streaming media, Netflix, the internet. That is, I'm also interested in disrupting the autonomy of the literary world uh, in its semantic guise. For me, literature is semantic, it's semiotic, it's auditory. There's, there are musical compositions that are literary, uh, just as there are, are, I mean, these kinds of... Um, Mixtures are very interesting to me as a, as a, as a thinker. So, uh, the transnational is also, in my mind, uh, a reminder to keep things less parochial, less local, more international, and more multimedia. Mm -hmm. In your book, Text Mex Seductive Hallucinations of the Mexican in America. You argue that, and I'm quoting you, Latino, uh, Latina, Latino Americans have represented a subject, and then we have the bracket subjected population, that is until quite recently, they have not contributed to mainstream mass cultural, textual, and cinematic representations of their own communities. Even when they have contributed, said acts of art have not dominated gallery space at MoMA uh, or rollicked box office tills from Tulsa to Portland to Tex Arcana. Um, <laughs> End quote. So my question here is, has your view regarding the literary or filmic productions by uh, Latina Latinos changed in the, in the nearly 10 years since your book's publication? Wow, thanks and for the so reminder. Well. 10 years. <laughs> God, I'm getting old. The book is old. Um, it's certainly evolved. Uh, I mean, bear in mind that the last two Academy Awards have been won by Mexican nationals. Guaron mm -hmm. um, and Iñárritu. Um, it's the Mexican golden age, uh, the neo-golden age of, of Mexican cinema, 21st century version. And uh, certainly we've seen progress with uh, the advent of sitcoms and the like focused on uh, Latino-Latina characters uh, like Jane the Virgin and Cristina. Um, this fall on uh, Fox, of all networks, uh, Border Town will premiere a joint project by Gustavo Ariano, 
the editor of OC Weekly, and Lalo Alcaraz, who does the nationally syndicated uh, La Cucaracha a comic strip. Uh, this is going to be The Simpsons a la Frontera. So uh, I'm, I guess my, my attitudes are much more positive. That said, we've also enjoyed huge scare quotes in the last uh, 10 years. A resurgence, uh, I was lecturing about this yesterday, of neo-fascist racist hate, mm -hmm. specifically against immigrant bodies, allegedly diseased Mexican bodies, uh, thank you, Lou Dobbs. Um, and so the mass media, especially uh, right-wing talk radio, became obsessed uh, with uh, uh, distracting us uh, away from uh, what would have been a very progressive Obama uh, agenda. And they were successful. Uh, the issue of race is now front and center. Uh, it's not accidental that this is going down on the watch of a biracial president. Uh, uh, Obama's body, his presence, his being is an instigator to a resurgence of, uh, you know, it's almost like a digital lynch squad, lynch mob. Um, so, though I'm I'm very hopeful and happy that there is more Latino-Latina representation in American mass media, um, you, you also have to counter... Uh, counter that enthusiasm with the realization that hate has never been more in vogue and that a lot of that hate is directed at brown bodies mm -hmm. and people who have a Spanish language accent. It's almost like the sound of that accent perturbs people. The idea that the, the mother tongue uh, is so alien. Um, that's a part of the triggers for hate I haven't studied much, but I'm, I'm curious about it. Um, in the same book, you speak about the idea of, quote, visual indoctrination, in uh, quote, attendant to Latino, uh, Latina, Latino stereotypes. Specifically, you propose that, uh, quote, Mexicans and Americans of Mexican descent in this popular culture have often resembled ugly marionettes in the service of mercenary puppeteers, end quote. Um, so my question is, when did you first become aware of these stereotypes, and what circumstances compelled you to study them in depth? Wow. Well... I do talk about this a little in the book, but it, it's worth repeating. I was trained as a Latin, Ameri Latin Americanist, 20th century Latin American fiction and culture, but particularly fiction. I mean, I should have gone off into the world and written books about Elena Poniatowska, Remedios Baro, Carlos Fuentes, Octavio Paz, uh, maybe Manuel Alvarez Bravo, because I was interested in photography as well. Um, but my first job was at the University of Connecticut, and in 1988, I'm teaching a class called the Modern Novel. Uh, oh no, Modern Fic uh, Approaches to Modern Fiction, something like that. Maybe it was the Modern Novel. And I'm teaching a section on essays, and I'm teaching um, El Labyrinto de la Soledad, The Labyrinth of Solitude, by Octavio Paz, a book I, I have, you know, huge problems with, but I also merit and credit with being a, a singularly important 20th century piece of intellectual history. And I was talking about Mexican intellectual history. And this asshole in the back of the room laughed. There's something about the conjunction of the words Mexican and intellectual, mm -hmm. or Mexican intellectual history, triggered an uncontrolled response. Sort of like a 
someone fainting or vomiting. It is at that level. It was at the level of the unconscious. The student was not a bore. I mean, maybe they were a little bit of a bore. But they didn't purposefully set out to do anything um, wounding. But I was wounded to my core, the, the chuckle, the laughter. And I became obsessed with understanding the, the origin of the laughter. What would create that oxymoron, uh, that trigger, triggering oxymoron for laughter? Mexican intellectual. Well, it had to be something about the, his, the cultural history of the United States. Uh, and so I started obsessing over the, I, I would call them steamer trunks. You know those old steamer trunks people would take on cruise lines? Mm -hmm. And I, it, it occurred to me that every student who walked into my Connecticut classroom was walking in with this existential steamer trunk filled with preset ideas about what a Mexican was, what a Mexican look like uh, and a lot of those triggers uh, that they were lurking in that steamer trunk were emotional uh, they were fearful in any place you have fear you don't have you have no intellectual capacity because you revert you revert to the you know that creature by the cave getting attacked by the mountain lion and so it occurred to me that before I could teach about uh, Fuentes and Poniatowska and the, the wonders of Latino and Latina literature, I was going to have to address the steamer trunk. The monsters these kids were dragging into my room, I was going to have to do war with stereotypes. And so that's where Tex-Mex was born. Um, can I do the next question? This is something I was really interested in. It relates to what you just spoke to about uh, discussing stereotypes. And I noticed that, um, so a lot of your work, especially in Tex-Mex, focuses on discussing stereotypes in film, but it extends past that. It extends past media and technology. And you talk a little bit about, um, or you incorporate material items and cultural artifacts, especially on your blog, your Tex-Mex gallery blog. So I was wondering if you could expand on the importance of including real tangible artifacts in your work and how do the cultural artifacts allow you to expand the concepts you present in Tex-Mex? That was an outgrowth actually of uh, I've always done community work in schools. Mm -hmm. uh, I've always believed that the one of the things that limits our range as professors is that uh, in, at the highest you know uh, division of, of academe is that we for, we become we become professors and we stop being teachers, and so the most effective tool you can use in the classroom is a prop, mm -hmm. is a toy, is an artifact, is an object. So it's a strange outgrowth of my pedagogy that I've always used uh, um, props, and I uh, I jokingly call myself the you know the Gallagher of academia because I bring in these steamer trunks. <laughs> Filled with, uh, I've got a Mr. T doll, um, I've got, um, you know, a Dora the Explorer doll and a bunch of little Barbies and they do war over a Mexican flag. Uh, <laughs> I do all kinds of shtick and, and uh, the, the Mr. T doll is, uh, you pull his cord and he says, I pity the fool. And I use these artifacts in when I'm teaching, not just young children, I use them in the college classroom because People never get tired of artifacts. I, I, brought, I bring in a, oh, what's it called? Uh, an, an old Aunt Jemima a pancake box uh, when I'm talking oh. about African-American figuration. Uh, the cream of wheat porter dude. I uh, bring in that box. 
I have this great, great. Um, white shoe polish box uh, that I bought in San Diego in the late 80s. 90, no, late, uh, early 90s. Um, it's called Snow oh, White Nurse shoe, shoe Polish. It has the strangest Caucasians you've ever seen on the, on the box cover because it's not just African Americans and Mexicans who look freaky when they're turned into uh, shills for products, semiotic selling objects, avatars for products. White people do too. And so um, I've always found that uh, carrying these props around um, uh, enables me to connect at another level with people for whom jargony terms mm -hmm. just they get turned off but they will look at the prop and I pass them around when I'm with you know so I have to be careful because sometimes the little kids the fourth graders try to steal oh, like, they, like Speedy Gonzalez got almost <laughs> stolen uh, three times I have a Speedy Gonzalez doll and um, so I've, I've found that they're icebreakers that, um, but they also remind me to be a teacher. Don't get so caught up with your mm -hmm. your smartness, your PhD. Yeah. You know, in Texas, PhD stands for piled higher and deeper, and that's sort of a Texas attitude. You know, piled mm -hmm. higher and deeper, <laughs> pile of shit. And I guess that keeps me grounded. You know, because um, I never want to be alienated from potential students. Our mm -hmm. our students are everywhere. Yeah. When talking about stereotypes of uh, Latinas and Latinos, um, we see that a lot of them are also shared by social media and, and technology in general. Um, in your work, we see that you use these same tools to try to unravel stereotypes, right? So do you have any advice for anyone who would also like to use technology and social media um, as mechanisms that help to untangle stereotypes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, don't read a book. Don't read a how-to guide. Just start doing it. I, I try to tell my undergraduates that because, you know, we hear that this our students are digitally native. Oh, they're digitally ignorant. Um, half of my students don't know how to do a Tumblr post. Uh, they don't know where to find the submit button. Um, a third of them are not on Facebook. They're on Snapchat um, or Instagram. And so uh, what, I t what I would tell a budding electronic uh, scholar who was interested in pursuing a study of stereotypes is to just begin. That's how I did the Tex-Mex Gallery blog. I just started posting things I would run across that were related to the ideas of the book and that I didn't get to talk about in the book. And at the beginning, there was extensive commentary. I mean, the first two years of Tex-Mex Gallery blog, or if I were to publish them, It'd be a three-volume book because I was writing about these phenomena. I should do that. What an idiot. <laughs> um, nowadays, I don't have time because I'm moving on to my new project, uh, Igene. And so I'll post stuff uh, maybe once every 15 days, 10 days on the, on the blog related to the book. But I don't have the time to put the extensive commentary. But a youngin, a new person who's just starting, you know, maybe you want to carve out your own. A particular phenomena and the beauty of the, of the web is that it's collaborative people will write in they'll send you stuff you know I get the most amazing uh, my career was changed by Facebook in fact I probably owe Zuckerberg he's already a billionaire but I owe him about 10% because I get so many invitations so many new ideas 
from now a cluster of correspondence, you know, 4,000 strong, that send me things they find. They become my correspondence, you know? And so uh, my big advice is don't think about it. Just start. Give it a name that encapsulates what you think is your idea so you have a good hook. You do, you do need a hook. Textmex is a good hook. Gallery blog is not. I wish I had just named the blog Textmex. Mm-hmm. Just keep it clean. Um, so keep it simple, stupid, like they say, and just do it. And the thing about blogs, at the for the first year, you have to be, you have to be, you have to work it. It's like a, it's like a um, raising raising a crop. You have to go and post and repost and if someone comments you have to respond to it mm-hmm. so that you develop a body of co-conspirators who assist you with your work mm-hmm. I want to go back really quickly to, to this idea of ecstasy in your blog in general um, for our audience um, it's turned into a documentary project yes TV so how did you professors on TV right. always <laughs> always scary shit that's scary how did you come up with this word? Can you tell us more about this project in general? And sure. Mextasy was the name I gave to the traveling museum exhibition. It's a pop-up gallery, and it's also a standard museum exhibition based on the book uh, Text Mex. I didn't want to call the gallery the museum exhibition Text Mex because, in my own mind, I associated it only with the stereotypes the bandit Mexican, the rapist Mexican, the Latina bombshell femme fatale, not that there's anything wrong with that, uh, or the Latino bombshell uh, homme fatale. And, uh, but I didn't want to call it um, Tex-Mex. I wanted to call it something positive, something exciting, something sexy. And so I thought of ecstasy one day. It's probably in the shower. Um, TMI, right? And... Um, <laughs> I, it just hit me, Mextasy, and I wrote it down, and I didn't know how I was going to spell it, you know, and then I finally found a spelling, M-E-X-T-A-S-Y, that I thought worked, and uh, the rest is history. The exhibition has been a huge success, uh, 25, 30 exhibitions all over the country, uh, actually internationally, in Canada as well, mm-hmm. and um what happened was about two years ago, I had a student in my class, an older student. His name's uh, Gerardo Juarez. His nickname's Bola. And it was a large lecture, 200 student intro to lit class. And he was a graduate student. But he wanted to sit in because we had met at a Latin American studies party. And he thought that I was curious. Like, who is this Nericho character? So he sat in in the class. And at the end of the class, he turns out to be a entrepreneur, early investor in Facebook, uh, from Mexico City, a lawyer who didn't want to be a lawyer anymore, he wants to be a writer, and he says, Nericho, that's what he calls me, Nericho, we have to make this into a TV show, what you're doing is important. Turns out he works for Blindspot TV, which is an international, multinational television production company based out of Mexico City. Long story short, long story long, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Um, they uh, invested uh, close to three quarters of a million dollar in it, dollars in a pilot and six episodes, and we've finished filming the first episode, and it's debuting uh, May 3rd at UCSD at a film festival. 
Um, your recent work is centered upon a, a concept that you term chicanosmosis. Um, how did you, or how do you define this concept, and how might a transnational approach inform your your work here? <laughs> I'm always feeding off the work of other people, right? And the definitive works on the border that I had run across when I came up with the word Chicanosmosis were uh, Carlos Fuentes and uh, Gloria Anzaldúa. And both of them spoke about the border between the United States and Mexico as a wound, una uh, herida abierto, or something like that. Uh, my Spanish is horrible. Um, and this idea of a war open wound or a sutured wound is very poetic and very powerful and it reflects the a lot of what you find at the border you know actual war between the US and Mexico occupation forces through Veracruz three times in the last you know what 150 years marines have occupied Mexican uh, territory um, and uh, um, I lost my train of thought. Um, oh, chicanosmosis. So I, was, I wasn't content with the idea of a wound, though, because I'm from Laredo. For me, the border was every day. Not every day, but we would cross the border, and it was, it was no big deal. You'd put a dime in a turnstile. You'd walk across. Some Mexican agent on the other side would nod at you. You'd go across. You'd hang out. You'd party. You'd drink. You'd, you know, we'd buy cheap booze. We'd bring it back. Um, the border was just a alternative space where for a teenager you had full freedom you know it's no one's going to card you uh, the clubs were great cigarettes were cheap um, it's where it's where all your friends went it's like cheers mm -hmm. to go to Nuevo Laredo from Laredo Texas in the 70s was like an episode of cheers everybody knew your name if they didn't they pretended to it was great um, and so una Herida Abierta doesn't capture my experience of the border. For me, the experience of the border was always about transfer. And I always think a little salaciously. So I, I like this idea of osmosis, you know, because osmosis for me is, is intercourse, it's communication, it's exchange. Uh, strictly speaking, I was a bio major. I was going to be an oncologist until I turned 19 and flunked out of organic chemistry. So I was pretty familiar with biological metaphors. So the idea of a transfer of vital substances through semi-permeable uh, fabric or membrane, I like the idea of fabric more than membrane, but the semi-permeable membrane, that for me was la frontera. So uh, I took the word Chicano because, you know, you know, progressive left of center, Americans of Mexican descent, me, and then osmosis, Chicana, Chicanosmosis, and that what I began to unravel were these uh, dozens of writers and performers and actors and, and uh, painters whose work was inflected not just by the tradition uh, these were largely American traditions on the, uh, from the United States and England no, these people's work was informed by uh, Mexico and Latin America and in a lot of cases both simultaneously that is their influence was both Latino and good old Uncle Sam. And so I wanted to talk about that. So sometimes you have to invent terms, neologisms, to account for phenomena that are not chronicled. And so I came up with that term. I hope it sticks. <laughs> it's a mouthful. It's hard to pronounce. Is there any, 
you say that you understand this term as an exchange of elements. Is there a restriction of what can be exchanged between these two sides of it? Is there a... A r restriction of what, what kind oh, of Oh, restriction, elements? absolutely. It's a semi-permeable right. um, membrane. Oh, yes, especially since 9-11. The, the semi-permeability of the, of the border, uh, the, it, be, it became less permeable in some respects, but this also coincides with the rise of the you know, Twitter sphere and uh, social media and digital media. So now, ironically, the border itself is harder to cross. It's uncomfortable. I mean, the U.S. Uh, the U.S. Special Forces the border patrol, the agents, everybody makes you feel criminal. It's not like in the past where it was kind of naturalized for me. You know, cruzar la frontera was like breathing. Now it's like going through Checkpoint Charlie, you know, strip search. So existentially, to move between borders is now more difficult. Ironically, because of social media, we're even more bombarded now, uh, especially in Southern California with Latino-Latina culture. Uh, investment bankers are not stupid people they make money for a reason and invest investors have decided that Spanish Spanish language uh, Spanish dominant Latino communities are a source of profit and so in Southern California we're entering this uh, brave new world of Latino high density high saturated popular culture and so um, um, I, f I feel even more immersed. Uh, so, uh, so in some respects, the, the border is more highly uh, policed. In other respects, it's more chaotic now. It's more Latino, Latina than it's ever been. Mm -hmm. I'm curious as to how stereotypes regarding brown bodies has changed since your childhood. Um, or even when you began your academic career. And kind of piggybacking off of that, that question, what do you see as the most prevalent or dangerous stereotype today mm -hmm. regarding that? I'll answer the first question first, and then you can remind me of the second question, because it's a, it's a complicated uh, question. The difference between when I was coming to consciousness and now is that the stereotypes are more aware of themselves. And I'll explain with two examples. Uh, Robert Rodriguez's Machete films mm -hmm. and Sofia Vergara on uh, Modern Family, but also what happened at the Emmys, where Sofia Vergara was, uh, placed herself up on a rotating pedestal as an, uh, uh, basically as a statue, as like Pygmalion's wet dream of the Latina mm -hmm. bombshell. In both cases, you have very self-aware Latino-Latina artists um, fully trafficking in some of the most obvious Latino-Latina stereotypes uh, that exist. In both cases, though, you don't have some Caucasian puppet master. You have the Latino-Latina artists themselves profiting off ironic and non-ironic redepictions of classic images of, in Danny, Danny Trejo's case, in, in uh, Machete, the scary Mexican. Mm -hmm. The scary bandit Mexican with the big knife, you know, who's uh, prone to ultra-violent acts. Trejo, in person, is a sweetheart. I mean, he's, he's incredible. 
Um, a really, really nice cat. And uh, so what you have here is a pretty self-aware, smart director, Robert Rodriguez, you know, Quentin Tarantino's uh, uh, collaborator, making films about scary Mexicans, about Mexican-U.S. conflict that are almost outsized cinematic allegories of fear and progress at once. And sometimes, in my argument, it gets the best of him. I think I think Robert could, you know, be one of the most progressive filmmakers we have, who happens to be an American and Mexican descent. But I think sometimes it's show business. He wants to make a cool profit, and he does. I think he's a filmmaker. He's a Hollywood star, um, and that's bound up with the economics of the traditional. Don't push it too much because your product won't sell. Vergara is more interesting. She, I mean, I mean, a little bit more interesting to me. What, what, you know, people were outraged at her uh, scene at the uh, Emmys, where she uh, placed around, placed herself on a pedestal as a as a kind of, I don't know, Latina Emmy award. She was a statuette, turning around. Uh, the 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 base was rotating, so that she became a kind of mock statue. That's smart. I actually think that's funny. And she's a savvy woman, she's a very smart woman, head of her own production company, multimillionaire, one of the biggest well-paid stars, stars in Hollywood. Um, so the difference between the past and the present is that people who are in the biz are self-aware and aware about the stereotypes, and they're reshaping them for fun, profit, and sometimes just for irony, for being smart. Mm -hmm. um, what was the second part of your the question? The second question was, what do you see as the most prevalent um, or dangerous oh, the, stereotype? Oh, the most dangerous stereotype, um, uh, and, you know, thank you, thank you to Fox News for this, is that of the, of the uh, well, it's two things. It's the undocumented, diseased immigrant, um, and then it's the, uh, the immigrant that will steal your job. It's the idea of the alien without who comes within and displaces your economy and not just your economy sort of your soul because they speak a different language they are uh, from a different tradition and so uh, this idea of the undocumented immigrant as uh, as one who not only steals your job not only is sick with leprosy or whatever disease Lou Dob Jobs Dobbs asshole Lou asshole says, um, but they're also they're alien. They're strange. They're frightening. Um, the frightening the uh, you know foreground fear, and you get people on your side, and that's how the fascist mind works. And they're good at it. I've been trying to puzzle together. I mean, this is part of ecstasy. How someone who's from the left and progressive can capitalize on that obviously it works you know I don't want to foment fear but you know could we foment fear of the fascist in just an effective way you know uh, I think of John Hartfield's montages during um, the second world war of the rise of fascists and the fascists I love his cut up style you know I want to do the same thing you know Limbaugh the Koch brothers and Hitler why not <laughs> why not they do the same thing. They paint with the wide brush. We should be able to do the same thing ourselves in a way that is engaging, fun, but a little bit more thoughtful. 
Um, the last question that I have um, deals with your role as a public intellectual. So many describe you as a public intellectual. Um, how do you scary, <laughs> scary, <laughs> scary? How yeah. do you how do you define that role, and um, how have you you know tried to engage a wider you know listening audience by incorporating um, elements of pop culture related to the to the U.S. Mexico border? We don't have Latino, we don't have Chicano, Chicana public intellectuals. We have too few. I mean, we need more uh, Gustavo Arianos. We need a dozen more Lalo Alcarazes. We need a thousand more Frederick Aldamas. We need uh, these people. I guess it hit me about 15... Oh, how many years has it been? Wow, 91, 9, 24 years ago. One of the first things I did uh, when I came to San Diego State is I was asked to keynote a Chicano high school conference. Every year, Mecha, the uh, Chicano student group at San Diego State University, brings high school students from across Southern California to San Diego State for a one-day fair, be at the university. They're all high school students, and uh, they asked me to keynote. I got up on stage. It was the first time I addressed, it was about 23, 2400 people. A huge audience. And it was exhilarating. And as I was talking, you know, I was talking about the need for uh, more Cesar Chavez's. And I guess I put it to the audience, which one of you people are going to step forward if Chavez falls and is going to take his place? Who's going to be the, you know, the face of progressivity and political action and social justice for Mexican-Americans. Mm -hmm. And um, it, I guess it occurred to me sometime after that that I might have to do some of that, that some of that role is going to have to fall on me. Because for whatever reason, I was Mexican, but I didn't have a Mexican accent. I was raised by television, Captain Kangaroo and Gilligan's Island, and so I can speak with a very... You know, I've done radio, so I know I have a voice that translates as, you know, not Tom Brokaw, but middle of the road. But I'm also Mexicano. Puedo hablar español. No, not well, but, you know, entiendo y I can communicate. And so I have this, if I have this linguistic uh, shape-shifting ability, I better damn well do something with it and I'm educated I'm, I've got a PhD from my Ivy League college I'm just going to stay in the Ivy League class I mean the university classroom no I had to share it I had to go back home my dream was to go back to the University of Texas boy Texas could use me now I think I think Texas is you know uh, it's on the brink of change but man it's gone through 15 years of horror just horror and it's the source of a lot of hate across the United States as other states like Kentucky follow t Texas's model mm -hmm. which is a bad model it's not it's not the country you know my father fought for in World War II uh, this is not the nation that a whole generation uh, fought for to defend this is you know uh, a scary brave new world uh, of neo-fascism so um, I guess the public intellectual dimension uh, it's a strange word because I guess it should just be like a public thinker because I don't want to be an intellectual when I talk to the public. I just want to be someone who's relatively well-educated, who might be able to bring a different perspective 
to things in a way that engages with a broader audience. Thank you for listening, and thanks to the College of Arts and Sciences, the Committee on Social Theory, and Social Theory 600 Transnational Lives for making this podcast possible.